it is about God, the Holy Spirit, that I want to um, share with you today. Um, it's an infrequently treated topic, but I felt like in this opportunity the Lord gives me to speak to you, I would share with you from my heart and from the scriptures um, about the possible relationship we can have with the Holy Spirit. He is, after one, after all, the one that Jesus sent us. The Father promised it to Jesus. Jesus promised it to us. And then he eventually sent it on the day of Pentecost. I know that in the church at large, uh, there are a few items regarding our relationship with the Holy Spirit that are considered controversial or they provoke controversy among some Christians. Um, <clears throat> there are some who, in my view, focus overly much on certain aspects of our relationship with the Holy Spirit, uh, his gifts, his miraculous works. Uh, others, on the other extreme, uh, militate against the idea that the Holy Spirit has uh, any activity today. Um, some of those are called cessationists by the theologians who put labels on everything. Um, and, and labels are useful. Um, and uh, that means that they feel like the miraculous gifts and works of the Holy Spirit uh, like tongues and prophecy, which we read in the New Testament, um, in the book of Acts and some of the letters, uh, ceased uh, somehow at the end of the apostolic age. And then there is a great other body of Christians I know that sort of tiptoe around the subject because uh, we're not sure uh, well, I'm not part of either of those three groups. Um, and as you will see, and whatever one of those groups you belong in, if you belong to Christ, we belong together because he is the center of our faith, as we sung uh, a few moments ago. Um, in this church, the elders... Since Diane and I joined some 28 years ago, if you can believe it, um, have taken a position that we're not cessationists. We do not deny that the gifts uh, of the Holy Spirit um, can be and are, in many cases, operational today in the church. Uh, that was the condition for our joining Diana was reminding me this morning, it's true. Um, we were drawn to the church because of its founding pastor, Jim Marcheri. What a, a resonant, uh, um, reformed, systematic theology. He was a great teacher. We have a great teacher in Ben as well. Uh, and so we had been brought up in the charismatic church you know, where each disciples of our teachers, Jesus said, the disciple cannot surpass his teacher. And so our teachers were charismatics when we were born again and received Christ. And so we were immersed in that stream of Christianity and we lasted there for over 10 years, about 12 years. Um, but as we came, became exposed to Jim Archery's teaching, uh, we were drawn towards a more systematic kind of theology and the richness which the re message of the Reformed theology um, held. So we were drawn, but as we told him, we could not deny what we knew. Uh, neither can you. And so um, we said, we, we are charismatics. We have 
uh, had the supernatural experience of uh, God at work in their lives. And uh, how do you feel about that? And he explained to us that the text, like Ben told us last Sunday, um, allows for the continuance of the gifts. And so who are we to deny it? We don't deny it. We're not cessationists. On the other hand, Jim explained to us that out of love for one another and in order not to cause a stumbling block to some of our other brethren in the church, we voluntarily, who are charismatics, refrain from using fully the public use of, for instance, tongues or prophecies or things like that. Uh, and instead, we allow the Lord to uh, have with each person the relationship that he wants to have. And so we were okay with that and have been okay for 28 years uh, in this church. In my own work abroad, where the overwhelming majority of the church is Pentecostal, charismatic, and there's all kinds of manifestations and expressions, especially of praise and joy uh, that are used, I am very at home. Uh, but I am very much at home here, and we have been at home um, for all these many years. So, as I meditated on the controversy about the Holy Spirit, I feel like there are two basic issues that tend to divide the brethren, and I hope none of them divides you or I. Uh, one of them is whether one, the Christian, receives the Holy Spirit simultaneously with receiving Christ into our hearts. Some feel that it is so, and others feel that no, there is that, but then there is yet another experience, a secondary, specific experience, a distinct event in which they receive the, they could use vocabulary like the fullness of the Spirit, the baptism and the Holy Spirit. These are all words that are in the scripture, but uh, that's one issue. With regards to that one issue, I want to tell you that I feel like both are correct. Uh, I read it in my Bible, and I've experienced it in my life, that we do receive the Holy Spirit when we receive Christ. How else could we receive Christ except the Holy Spirit reveals him in us, to us? If that's the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, there is no other way. It's not a work of the will of man or intelligence or persuasion is faith. By grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. Well, of who else? Of God. And if of God, who? The Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit. So I believe that is true. At the same time, I do not deny and have in fact experienced that encounter very personal, very powerful, unforgettable, and the consequences of that encounter uh, with the Holy Spirit uh, that the scripture labels variously as the fullness of the Spirit or the baptism and the Holy Spirit, that too. And so it is not either or, I think it's both and, quite frankly. Um, now the secondary cause for division that I found reflecting uh, upon these issues is that uh, some Christians believe that uh, they receive the Holy Spirit but without any necessary outward signs like no tongues, no prophecy, nothing extraordinary and unusual like that, whereas others feel that uh, you must have this extraordinary experience uh, and in those outward signs need to be there for you to be able to say, I am baptized in the Holy Spirit. Well, again, I feel like both of these are correct in themselves for different people. They describe the, the experience of different saints, proven saints, mature saints that I have walked with for the 40, now one years, that Diane and I have been converted together, we were converted together uh, 
at the same altar call. So, uh, in summary, I would say, I don't believe we should tiptoe around these issues. The Holy Spirit is real. The Holy Spirit is God at work in us and at work on the earth today. And so the scripture tells us a lot about him. I was looking at the book of Acts in preparation for the sermon and I found 38 instances in which the Holy Spirit is directly mentioned as working and doing and did this, did that, said this, said that. He is an integral part of our faith. Um, for myself, being a radical, um, before I converted, I was a really quite a radical. Um, I believe we should immerse ourselves, dive into any experience of God that is available to us. Now, let's make sure it is an experience of God, not the flesh, not mass hysteria, a true experience from the Holy Spirit confirmed by his word. And that little word confirmation is very really important. Um, so I want to begin by reading the scriptures. Uh, Pat, if you would, oh, it's already there. Thank you. There you see that word Theophilus. How about that? Theophilus Stephen. Huh? And uh, Luke is writing to probably a benefactor, a lover of God, Theophilus. Um, and he says, in the first book, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he has given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. This baptism in the Holy Spirit is a welcoming of God onto himself, corporately, not just individually. In Pentecost, as we will read next, uh, the church was integrated onto God, was made one with God, by the self-same spirit. We all partake from the same spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. It's what makes us one. So, um, I notice here this phrase, uh, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Here, Luke is quoting John, actually, uh, the Gospel, or John later, because it was written later. Uh, I'm not sure about the two dates. Um, we find this phrase, quoting Jesus, as quoted by the Apostle John. And then I find in the book of Acts, twice again, the same phrase, quoted only this time by Peter in one of his sermons, and then by Paul. So we have it rich witness about the, this difference between the water baptism of repentance from our sins and the immersion in the Holy Spirit. Um, now, <clears throat> the, this experience personal experience and corporate experience of the Holy Spirit is received with anticipation. Jesus told them, wait, wait, wait for the promise. Don't leave Jerusalem. Don't scatter. Stay together and wait for the promise of the Father because very soon now, not many days from now, you will receive uh, this baptism 
which makes you one by the Holy Spirit. Uh, now, we have to fight in ourselves pride, which insists that we must understand everything about God and be in control of all the experiences. We also must resist unbelief, our carnal uh, resistance, lack of expectation, um, forcing God to submit to our expectations. Now that's a, a grave error because we can't box in God in our little minds. Uh, he's so much extraordinarily greater than us. His thoughts are not our thoughts. They're much better than our thoughts. And his ways, much higher than our ways. That's, that's by definition. That's who he is and who we are. So having an expectation sown by the Lord himself uh, of a greater and growing relationship with God, the Holy Spirit, is necessary to receive from him um, and to receive more of him in our lives. It also requires obedience. I mean, Jesus instructed the disciples really explicitly, wait, don't scatter. Wait for the promise I told you about. And so they were obedient, as we read uh, in the next passage of the next event, which is Pentecost. Thank you. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. That's obedience. And suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Well, as you can see, this imparting of the Holy Spirit that is the origin of the church as a body, as a corporate spiritual body, one um, was not a quiet, unobtrusive event. <laughs> it was noisy. It was disruptive. It was so noisy, it was a scandal. I mean, thousands of people gather as a result of this portent, this event that occurred in, in Jerusalem. Uh, and it was marked with supernatural things and sounds and signs and, and tongues of fire. Um, the disciples burst out in praise to God, but they did it each one in different tongues. Uh, tongues they didn't know. They hadn't grown up with those tongues. They, they were given to them for the purpose of glorifying God on that day. Uh, now, these are not the same tongues as Paul talks about in other, uh, several of his letters. For example, he talks about the tongues of men and angels in 1 Corinthians 13. Um, he talks about uh, a, a manifestation of God that is called tongues that require interpretation, or the church doesn't know what has been said. Uh, he talks about tongues which are like the personal prayer language of praise that many of us are granted. Uh, these are different kinds of tongues, and Paul addresses that. These are tongues to make Christ known, to make the praises of God understood by people from different nationalities. Thirteen different nationalities are listed in, in the following passage uh, to this one that I just read at Pentecost. It was a great portent. It reminds me of Babel, when precisely the opposite happened, when men couldn't understand each other for the first time because their languages were changed by the Lord. This time, God spoke of a new humanity and, you know, uh, demonstrated that he is going to make one, that around his throne there will be people from every tongue, every tribe, 
every people, every nation. That is the work of God and that is the plan of God. So <clears throat> there are also, and I know this from experience as well as some teaching, false teachers. There are false tongues uh, that are, I don't know, demonically inspired. There is mimicry, people imitating tongues. There is, as I mentioned before, mass hysteria when people will do whatever. I mean, some concerts that I have seen uh, on TV remind me of mass hysteria. You know, people are capable of doing insane things just in the furor and the enthusiasm of the moment. That is also true, and we need to be aware of that because there, by, by the grace of God, go I, go any of us. So we need to be uh, careful and discerning what is inspired by God, what draws us closer to God and away from the world versus what feeds our flesh and makes us very popular uh, with the crowd. So that's a, a warning about uh, this issue of tongues. Um, and then I want to continue reading a little bit from the first of Peter's sermons that he preaches as a result of his initial uh, baptism of the church in the Holy Spirit. Um, and so I read from verse 14 of the second chapter. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. Listen up. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall see dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. I will have my way, said God through the prophet Joel. And Peter says, see, this is what's happening. It's being fulfilled. He understood by the spirit that this is what was going on. We can see today, centuries later, that the immediate effect of Pentecost was a mass revival. 3,000 people were added to the church that day. And then, not long afterwards, another several thousand, 5,000. Um, and uh, there was great commotion uh, by the Holy Spirit, signs and wonders. Uh, in fact, I think the book of Acts should not be called the Acts of the Apostles, as it's called. It should be the Acts of the Holy Spirit, because that's the protagonist of what's happening. He calls the shots, he decides when, he decides who, he decides how. <laughs> It's all the Holy Spirit. I mean, all the disciples did is minister the best they could to an uh, initially unexpected situation. Later, they came to expect it and said, you know, they, they asked of Peter, uh, you know, the, when the reports came that the Holy Spirit had fallen in Samaria, they said, wait a minute, uh, uh, are they baptizing the Holy Spirit? And so they sent Peter and John to check it out, see if it was a complete experience, because, you know, the, the church was being put together. They were finding out how uh, to be the church. Um, now, I'm going to read one other passage, the last one, the one, Acts 2, 37 through 40. Yes. Um, this is on Peter's second sermon when he expounds at length on all that the people of Israel had done to the prophets before Jesus and then to Jesus, how they crucified him. So at the end of that, uh, I quote, 
Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. This is one of the places where I develop the confidence that the gift is for us today too. We are far off in time, also in distance, and also where I develop the confidence that anyone that God calls to himself receives the gift of the Holy Spirit. Whether I understand it or not, whether I can see it and measure it according to my little lens or not, it is written, it is God's word. So I'm confident of that opinion that I share with you. Um, as a result of this message today, I hope that you too will enjoy the fullness of God's spirit. I cannot give it to you. It's not for me to give. It's Jesus to give. Besides, you are believers. I have worshipped with you for, with some of you, for all 28 years, like Paul. Uh, so, you know, I know you as fellow believers. So I know the Holy Spirit is in you. But I also know that if we don't uh, receive teaching, and if we don't receive that teaching that is available to us, then we can go on just the way we were, leave church the way we came in, uh, time after time after time over the years. That's happened to me, so I know it can happen uh, to you. Um, Diana and I received this um, experience of the Holy Spirit when we converted. We converted at a dinner uh, in a hotel, a Christian dinner, had been organized and we had been invited and there I will speak for myself. I heard the gospel, um, I think for the first time. I had heard the preaching very much in the past in my childhood. I had been a, a junior seminary student uh, trying to become a priest, all that. But by this time I was a hardened old man, a reprobate, 33 years old, um, a terrible person really. Um, and um, somehow the Lord opened my ears and my heart so that as a lady shared her testimony of her relationship with Jesus, I was attracted to that. And in time, after she made an altar call, what is called an altar call, um, and I, I didn't go because nobody else went. I didn't want to be the only one. I was chicken. But when she lowered the bar and said, oh, any of you who want to receive prayer, come forward. And half the people got up, and I did too, with them. And in that state of really semi-unbelief, um, he received me. And he made himself real to me. And he changed our life, I can say that, uh, on behalf of both of us. And after somebody led me in the sinner's prayer, um, another person came and said, you'll be happy to know that your wife has received the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Who knows what that could be? I assumed it was something good, but I had no idea, uh, except that <clears throat> I saw Diana working her way through the crowd. She had gone forward, but elsewhere in a big room, 
And I thought, she is drunk. I knew what Diana Conk might look like. That was drunk. <laughs> so she came over and we hugged. And as I looked over her shoulder, I opened my eyes and the whole room had changed. When I came in, it was a bunch of bourgeois women with big hairdos and kianas and you know big flowers on their chest and leading the banquet. Uh, not a single minority in the place. I was a civil rights organizer. I was counting heads. So it was a bad place to begin with. But when I look over Diana's shoulder, having received that love, ineffable love of God, it had changed. This were all my brothers and my sisters, mainly sisters, it was mostly women. Uh, and I had been, I experienced that I had been like picked up and put down somewhere else. I had been <laughs> translated <laughs> into a whole new environment. Same people, but a completely different perception in my heart. My heart had been initially changed, and it kept on changing. Um, we picked up our son, who was three and a half years old uh, at the time, and we brought him home. And I was trying to explain to him what was happening because I didn't know how to explain it, especially to a three and a half year old. So I put it to him this way. I said, look, from now on, it won't just be us three living in our house. Now there is somebody else. His name is Jesus. And he is good. And he loves us. I was, he had no problem accepting the gospel uh, at that age. Uh, another reality. So we took him home and we knelt down with him next to the bed and uh, said nighty-night to the Lord, something we had never done in the past. We were hippies. Um, and we went to sleep. And then when we went to sleep, Dan and I entered our bedroom, and we closed the door for privacy, and we looked at each other. And we both had the same thought, that we were no longer just two in that bedroom. Now Jesus was with us in a, in a reality. That is how real the presence of the Lord had become to us. Two hours before surrendering to the Lord, he is real. Um, so we knelt down ourselves and we prayed and welcome the Lord to our marital embrace. And that's how we began our walk on March the 8th, 1979, with Jesus. And of course, we had no idea. I had no idea. She had been brought up in the Reformed Church, so she knew the word. I did not. So to me, everything was news. Um, and so, the next morning in our first fight of the day, because uh, <laughs> we fought over everything, um, we realized uh, that we had to find out what Jesus wanted because I said to her, Diana, it's not important. The most important thing is not what you think or how you feel or how I think or feel. The most important thing is how does Jesus think? How does he feel? And we, I didn't know. So we had to go get a Bible and begin to consult to see by the Holy Spirit how does Jesus uh, think. And brothers, in those early days, I remember the Lord correcting 
my study Bible. I bought a big study Bible with a miser, of course. And I was reading everything. And at one point, I, I found a secessionist note. Uh, it was a Schofield. And it says, these gifts have ceased. And I heard in my ear, error. <laughs> so that began to orient me towards uh, the upbringing that I would have later in the faith. The Lord will correct us. The Lord will convict us. The Lord will teach us. The word says that the Holy Spirit will guide us into all truth. So if we want to know the truth, go to the source, the teacher, the Holy Spirit. He's also, of course, a comforter and uh, a paraclete that walks alongside us. Um, in my personal experience, guidance has been a main activity of the Holy Spirit in my life. We were taught early on by our first disciples that God speaks and you can hear his voice and you can get directions from him. So the next Sunday morning, early, while Diana slept, I whipped out my yellow pad and a pen and I went through all the prayers that they said you should go to to cleanse your heart and you know get before his presence and worship him all that. And I waited for the Lord to speak. I did not hear a voice, but I knew and I wrote what he said. And he said, you are to go to Virginia. We were in New Jersey. You are to call so and so, one of the two people I had met months before who lived in Virginia. And when you do, your call is going to be a testimony to him. Wow. Lord, I never heard your voice. And by that time, I had read that you have to test the spirits. So I said, I need to test your spirit. Uh, I, I know what I will do. I won't tell Diana. You tell Diana. And then I will know. It is so. And I got up, I said, you know, I think the Lord wants to speak to us. Let's pray. We were busy, the child, church, the meal with the saints. We went somewhere else to bless a home, you know, church life, Sunday. So it was evening before we could be alone and pray. And so we prayed. We got on a small room and prayed. And I used to interrupt Diana's prayers because I prayed loud and in tongues and everywhere good. You know, it used to bother her. It used to be another reason to fight with my prayers. <laughs> uh, he changes us, but not so totally that you don't continue to make the same mistakes. And so <clears throat> uh, I thought the louder I prayed, the more likely it was that God was going to speak to Diana. But during a lull, suddenly I heard Diana like a sigh, what would you call it? A sob. She was pregnant with Melody by then. And sob. And she says, oh Lord, not Virginia. <laughs> so that's why we are in Virginia. Uh, 42 years later, it's because the Lord said so. We did not know. We had to ask him everything. When do we go such a day? What do we do with the car? Give it away. What do I do with the money? Split it in half. Uh, you know, give our teachers half. And all kinds of answers. Uh, how do we travel? By train. Which train? There were two. The first one, everything. We asked the Lord everything. What to do with every item, everything. Every night we'll get together and pray and then listen and sense unity. And believe me, when Diana and I agree on something, it's the Lord. <laughs> we had a long history of not agreeing on virtually anything except certain things. And so, um, guidance. The Lord has led me. Um, he brought us to Virginia. In Virginia, in New Jersey, I had a wonderful, cushy job 
was a state job. My boss came to pick me up in a state car every day and rode me home every day. I designed a program that several professionals accomplished and we did a study of all the prisons of New Jersey. It was fun, it was a prison uh, system job. And then when he calls me to Virginia, there is no jobs. This is 1979. Uh, terrible depression. Uh, and so I had to become a prison guard. So in the other job, my office was next to the superintendent of corrections of New Jersey. Here I was a prison guard in the last state prison of the state in St. Bride's Correctional Institution in Chesapeake. Uh, so there I am for two and a half years, memorizing scripture during my long shifts in the guard tower, uh, and surviving an environment that was completely foreign to me. It was my Bible school, those two and a half years as a prison guard. And then the Lord speaks to me on the way to work one day and gives me a vision of a global uh, ministry, and he says, you have a part to play in that. And he gives me a scripture, which is the same scripture he gave to my pastor at that time. Uh, but he had given it to him in 1958. This event I'm narrating was in 1982. So I tell my pastor, look, this is what the Lord put in my heart. And he says, you know, it sounds like it could be from the Lord, the vision involved Regent University. And so he says, why don't we go talk to some of the leaders of Regent University, see what they think of it. We didn't know anybody. But Diana's parents had brought us a package, had, had given a package to bring to us, to a student that came to study at Regent University from New Jersey, so we knew him. And so I called him and he set up an appointment with the vice president at the time. And the vice president listened to my narration of the vision. And then he said, for 18 years I have been walking with this scripture, unprompted. And he gives us the same scripture the Lord gave me and the Lord gave to my pastor. And so we made an appointment with the Dean of Theology and with the Dean of Students and with the Dean of um, Education and all four of them in the space of about a week cited to us unprompted the same scripture. There was no way to deny that something uncommon was happening. So because of that, my church agreed and they funded our housing for two years. My pastor said, give notice at the jail. He called it the jail. And so that's how I entered the ministry, not knowing anything. I was a babe in the Lord. Guidance. God will guide you. He will guide you who to marry. He will guide you in which job to take or not. He will guide you about where to live. He will guide you about anything you ask him innocently, like a child. You have to be like a child with the Holy Spirit. You can't play adult. If you're too adult, you, you just shut the channels because you have to be vulnerable. You have to be trusting. You have to be dependent. He will meet your needs at whatever stage of your relationship with God and your maturing in the faith you are. He has the answer to your questions. I really have experienced and believe that. In addition to guidance, I would say the biggest gift that if my relationship with the Holy Spirit has given me is a new identity. Uh, one thing is the theology of being adopted by God. But another thing is the reality of a father in our lives. 
I am convinced that all of us are born orphaned, spiritually orphaned, because we're not born in Christ. We're born apart from God. Well, that's an orphan. And our parents, being sinners, are also orphans. And so we inherit sorrows, the effect of sin in the generations previous to our birth. Our parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, to the fourth generation. Four times the scripture says that. And Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He received the Holy Spirit. And he says, I've come to bind up the brokenhearted. We're all brokenhearted. None of us received all the love that we needed. They couldn't give it to us. It has to come from God. And so, there is a great healing awaiting every Christian of those areas of our lives that uh, our sin combined with the sin of our ancestors produce in us. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Some call it inner healing. Uh, doesn't matter the label, but it's the reality. Uh, if we read um, the original narration of what Luke 4 tells us, the scene about Jesus in the synagogue, that solemn moment when he, for the first time, he's 30 years old, he stands up to read, and they give him the roll, and he opens it up, and he finds the place, Isaiah 61, and begins to read it. Luke retells the story. Uh, and this, the passage that Luke quotes continues in the second verse of Isaiah 61, and he says, to give him beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the mantle of praise over the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. For us, for each of us, available today, always to us, we have to believe, to receive, just like we have to believe in the redemption of Christ, in the love of the Father represented by the cross. Of Christ that took faith it's the only way we could have believed it and therefore received that grace of salvation that even though our sin abound grace did much more abound overcame all that sin in me and in each of us well the same way that broken heartedness which is in us because of our spiritual orphanhood needed to be healed with the sonship love of God who loves us as our children. This is my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. May those words resonate in your heart, my friends, my brethren, and do in you what only the Word of God and only the Spirit of God can do. Uh, and may we remember and recount all those times that God came through for us. He came to us. He didn't leave us to ourselves, but He came. And so I would like to end here. Uh, just with a prayer 
because, Lord, we are, every one of us, in your presence. And there is nothing hidden to you. Every one of our needs, every one of our fears, every one of our doubts, every one of our judgments, Lord, how we need you. We do need you, Lord. And in this last sermon of the year that you've given us the privilege to share together, I have testified, Lord, of what you have shown me and taught me and Diana for many years. But you know very particularly, very precisely, what is the word, what is the encouragement, what is the healing, what is the adoption that each one of my brothers and my sisters here might need. Lord, you know our future. We're about to begin a new year. Next time we gather, it will be next year. And Lord, you know what we need for what is coming up in our lives. Would you, Holy, Holy Spirit, grant it to us? Open, Lord, the eyes of our heart, our ears, our spiritual ears, and grant us the faith to believe in you, the hope to expect from you, the joy to receive of you. Lord, we love you. And we thank you. In Jesus' name.